Miles, you talk while I swallow my gum. Okay. Hi, and welcome to Podcasties. Ooh. What can I get you today? What can I get you, besties? I'm an Aries. Miles? You just fucked my bit, I guess. But yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm an Aquarius. Mariah? I'm a Libra. Ooh. Let's I do this whole, that right do this whole thing where it's like a Chipotle, but for podcasts. We're like, oh, can I get like a movie podcast? Oh, can I get... Wait, wait you said podcast. What'd you say? Podcasties. How was I supposed to extrapolate Chipotle from that? I don't know. Welcome to podcast. It just felt like a restaurant. Ah, fuck it. Okay. Whatever. Hey. Hey, guys. How's it going? Um, Welcome back. Welcome back. You're not. You're not welcome back. I'm not welcome back. Welcome to the third episode of the year. Yes. We're going to talk about a movie. We're going to talk about a Best Picture winner. We <gasps> talked about Nomadland, which is Best Picture winner. Yes. And Everything Everywhere All at Once, which we talked about last episode, is making its rounds. And we don't know where it is right now, but... We do know... Who knows? Mariah, your favorite boy, won a Golden Globe. Yes, he did. <laughs> and the Critics' Choice Awards. Yes. Yes, very, very, very excited. And if you don't know who Miles is referring to, that is Martin McDonough. Who is my favorite filmmaker? Oh. oh, we were talking about Kihoi Kwan. Yeah. Oh, he also won a golden. <laughs> okay, two of my favorite boys. Because we because we were just talking about, we were everything, talking about everything everywhere we were all at once. Well, sir, you said my my favorite boy. I met him, and I well, okay. I kind of you've I I think on record you you have said he's your favorite boy as well. But right, it's just you know context clues. Look, there's a lot of com- miscommunication. We're starting it's, off it's strong. Starting off chunky. It's been okay. a while since we've been here. A little rusty. Mm-hmm. I might putting be the training rusty. wheels back on. Yeah, I'm boring. Get some rusties. Some rusty. Okay. Enough in your of this. bumper. Enough of this. I'm, I'm putting and the train a back on the track. Luck. This is going to get out of hand. You quick. too. Um, can be movies. Like me. We talk about. Ciao. Wow, you really just had <laughs> to do the whole thing. <laughs> Let's talk about movies that we've seen recently before we talk about our main movie. Yes. Okay. We got to get through the pizza to get to the crust. I'm going to go last. So what you- was that? Oh, okay. Sorry. I caught up with what you said. Huh? My brain was just working like a second behind. Huh? All right. Well, I watched the movie Twins. With Arnold? Yeah. Featuring the very buff, sexy, wonderful, full-haired actor, Danny DeVito. Danny DeVito and his kind of like ugly looking um less superior buddy, yeah, honestly less superior in every uh, regard arnold schwarzenegger mm-hmm. it was good it was funny there's one bit in the movie because like it's it's very grounded the entire movie like yeah it's kind of a weird idea that these nine dudes came together and <laughs> i'm gonna say some boys <laughs> no i'm not gonna say it. these nine dudes genetically merge and have like the perfect kid still works and the the leftover so like everything perfect about these men go into one kid and what's left the hufflepuff goes into danny devito they go on a kooky adventure and it's all very grounded except for one part where they murder a man oh they drop like a chain on his head and the whole bit is this chain just keeps piling on and they're like, even, they're like, what the fuck? They're like looking up, like seeing where the chain's coming from, being like, why is this thing so fucking long? And by the end of it, it's a mountain of chain. And I was just like, why is this Looney Tunes ass bit 
in this movie. I thought it was really funny, but it was just like kind of weird. I really enjoyed it. All right, I'm I'm gonna um, combine three movies to talk about them, which is I watched the Before trilogy by Richard Linklater. That is, before... which is Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, and Before Midnight. In the first one, so it's Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. The first one is 1995, and they are on a train, and Ethan Hawke says, hey, you should get off on this train with me. I fly out in the morning, but I really like you. And so they spend the whole night together until sunrise. And then they leave, and they decide, in six months, let's meet back here on this plat- on this train platform. And that's when it ends. And then the second movie comes out in 2004, so nine years later, when they're older, mm-hmm. and it's them reuniting. And then the last one is 2013, so another nine years later. It is, after this that. is in movie time or real time? Real time. Oh. So all three movies, that, yeah, those, those are the actual like, years that they came out. And so you age with the characters, and the dialogue is incredibly natural. Like you'd think it was just improv. And they just do a lot of really long shots, a lot of two shots of them just walking through the streets. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like you're genuinely watching these two people fall in love and have these deep conversations and explore Europe together. Yeah, the last, that sounds great. The last thing I need is sitting in my room alone in the dark watching two people be happy. Uh, it was, well, there's some like ups and downs and stuff like that. And I don't want to spoil it because there's some like kind of twists and turns like that are revealed in each of the movies. In terms of, oh, where do you think, you know, did they meet six months later on the train station? You find out in the second movie. And then after that, it's like, oh, do they do this? You find out in the third movie. Right. And (laughs) I watched it with my mom and my little sisters. And I was like, damn, we're so lucky that we can just watch these in a week. Whereas Richard Linklater and people who loved these movies had to wait nine years. And I can just watch them in one week and just know the whole story very quickly. Like... Anyone who enjoyed Avatar and had to wait for Avatar 2. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed them. I think, yeah, the dialogue, the acting, the cinematography, it just genuinely feels like you're watching two people in real life. It feels like a documentary. It's really good. Nice. Stefan, what did you watch? No way to all my Avatar heads, by the way. I see you. I watched a movie called The Great Silence. It's a Western movie uh, directed by Sergio Corbucci. I really liked it. It's a snow western, so they're out in the mountains and they're in the snow. There's this guy named Nero. That's the actor. I forget his last name, but he's in a lot of westerns. But he plays our protagonist, and he's a mute. He doesn't talk, and he he got he has a he has a Mauser C96. It's a gun. It's the one Han Solo has before they put all the stuff on it to make it look like a space gun. I that's think a it's cowboy gun. Um, no, it's not. Um, that's why I liked it. It was very irregular pick. It's like a World War One gun. Okay. Um, but it's just cool to see it. It's very iconic. It's a very good movie. He's like a gunslinger, and he's protecting a bunch of outlaws from a bounty hunter. So the dynamic's a little different, you know. Normally, the bounty hunter is our protagonist. But wait, so what era is this? Um, it's like the Western time, probably. So it's Western time with a World War One gun. Yeah, I mean, the gun was made like uh, eighteen ninety six. It's called a Mauser C ninety six, eighteen ninety six. So huh. came about late, but it was really cool. It's got Klaus Kinski. He plays the bad guy, and he is one heck of a bad guy. What I liked about it was it was um, a bit of a revisionist Western, which is Westerns that subvert the genre of the Western. We like typically, those. Typically in Westerns, we have certain tropes 
or in old westerns, you know, of good guys, bad guys, and this and that. And it started coming about that we'd have western movies that that do away with that. I don't know if you guys are aware of this. Here's a little film history for you. Film the history. Motion Picture Production Code, established in 1930, made it so movies that were made in Hollywood need to appeal to morality codes. Yeah. They needed, they needed to do things according to the, the sort of parameters that they had of like how the cops were depicted in movies. They needed to be depicted as good people and people that you could trust and loyalty and good and bad had to be pretty clear. And if people did good things that were the hero, then they had to prevail in the end, you know, stuff like that. And because of that, revisionist Westerns couldn't really be a thing because you couldn't play on the Western tropes because if you did, then you were a communist. And we're tearing down the moral <laughs> fabrics of the United States. But in the 60s, it was relaxed. Uh, 50s, it was relaxed. And in the 60s, it was done away with, was terminated. And then some revisionist westerns could uh, come about, such as the movie we're talking about today. No Which country is? Oh, for old men. That came out in 2009. No. No. Try again. 2007. There we go. I got you guys. Ha ha. All right, but before we get into this, I wanna, I wanna, I'm gonna get kind of technical with this one a Real couple quick, of times, we, so you might need to keep up the humor. For we me. need to talk about the movie. We need to, do, we need to. Do you want to do the first half? I'll do the first half. Okay. All right. Mm, you're in Texas. Mind's eye picture. It's beautiful. You're hunting. It's a guy. He UAV spotted. He sees a deer or a buck or whatever the fuck it is. I don't know. He shoots it. He's bad. He misses. He picks up his cartridge. He goes. He sees the drug deal. The aftermath of a drug deal because everyone's dead. Uh, and then he follows the like lone survivor. Survivor. What is the what is the term he uses? Ultimo hombre. Ultimate hombre. Ultimo, Last man standing. Ultimo hombre. So he finds him, finds some money, uh, and he's like, oh shit. I'm and it's not some money. It's $2 million. It's $2 million. So he takes it and he's like, I'm going to keep this. So he feels bad because he left the dude there who wanted water. So he goes back, but he gets found out. And so that kind of leads us into this whole chase thing where they got to find this guy who has all the money. And he's like, oh, shit, the cartel is chasing me. Uh, and then we find out that an, a fucking insane man is also going after him, Mariah. And that man's name is Aunt Anton Chigur. Anton Sugar. And so basically Anton is tracking Llewellyn, the guy who has the money. Basically, from motel to motel in different towns in Texas as Llewellyn tries to escape him. Uh, first motel, doesn't find the money. Uh, Anton ends up killing some people instead. Go yeah, to the second motel. Brutally murders yes, very a couple brutally. people. Uh, they go to the second motel. Llewellyn realizes there's been a tracker in the bag. They kind of have a shootout because Anton finds him again because there's a tracker in the bag. Um, and then Llewellyn's hurt. Goes across the border. Drops off the money. Comes back. Goes to the hospital. Woody Allen. Woody Allen? Oh, my God. Mm. Nope. Woody Harrelson shows up and is like, he's going to kill you. But then Anton kills him. Uh -huh. um, and Anton's basically like, yeah, man, I'm going to kill you. But then Llewellyn decides to go back to his wife because he loves her. But as he's at a different motel, the Mexican, car Mexican cartel, which is also after the money, ends up just shooting him off screen. All the while, Tommy Lee Jones, who's a sheriff, has been trying to follow the situation, save Llewellyn, and find Anton. He's not successful. Yes, yeah, slowly um, just losing all life in him. Yes. And then basically in the end, Anton kills everybody, walks away after a car crash. And then Tommy Lee Jones retires as sheriff because he realizes he's outmatched and uh, it's too much for him. And then also uh, Llewellyn's wife dies. Anyway, so that's what happens in No Country for Old Men. Stefan, was that an adequate summary? Yeah, that worked. I can work with that. That'll do her. 
It's a chase movie. Mm. For money. I've realized I love two kinds of movies. One, stuck in a cabin, much like... Uh, <laughs> yes. Hateful Eight. Yes. The Hateful Eight and that one where it's like the Russians and the British people stuck in a cabin. I don't know if either of huh? you have seen that. Don't worry about it. And <laughs> chase movies. Specifically, mm-hmm. chase movies yes. where you're just watching two people try to outsmart each other. Mm-hmm. And what I like even more is Westerns. And what I like even more is Neo-Westerns. And this movie is a Neo-Western. I know we kind of mentioned it, but our, our uh, supposed main character dies off screen. Yeah. The bad guy gets away, and it ends with an old man talking about his dreams. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. What excitement. This movie's based on a book I got it here in my hand by Cormac McCarthy. He's our author. He doesn't. It's not his hands. He it's lied. not in my hands anymore. I set it down. He also wrote a book called The Road that became a movie, which the book won a Pulitzer Prize. He also wrote a book called Blood Meridian, which I don't know if you guys know anything about this book. Mariah has her nose resting on the pop filter of a microphone. But anyways, Blood Meridian. My, my brother in Christ, I barely know anything about No Country for Old Men. It's, it's okay. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know much about this book, but apparently it's very good. It is, it is considered one of the greatest works of American literature. Many people put it up next to Moby Dick. You've probably heard of that one. Harold Bloom, the most famous literary critic in the English-speaking world, said it is one of the 20th century's finest novels. Um, but the reason I bring it up is because a lot of people have tried to make it a movie, and it just has not worked once. Ridley Scott tried. Andrew Dominic, Tommy Lee Jones even tried. James Franco was involved at one point. None of them could do it. It's our time. That just tells you what kind of work this author does. In fact, some people describe Blood Meridian as designed to elude interpretation. Mariah, it's up to you. You got to figure it out. God. You got to crack the you code. You have to crack the code. You have to crack the code. Much like Hallelujah. Excuse me? Yeah. The song? The Hallelujah. song about the Bible? Yeah. The one from Shrek? The one from the one written well, for it, Shrek? It, no, it wasn't originally written for Shrek. So, I, I know. No, no, I know no. that's the joke. Historically, a dude wrote it. It was very bad. Leonard, no one liked Leonard it. Cohen. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then another guy tried to sing it, and no one liked it. And then another dude tried to sing it, and no one liked it. And then mm-hmm. finally, like someone sung it, and they're like, "Oh wait, this song's actually it's a probably Jeff Buckley is one of the most well-known ones for singing." So I'm saying so you could be him. Jeff Buckley. Yeah. Okay. I don't know why you've roped her into this. She's not. She's not fit for it, man. Oh, oh she can't dig it. Wow. Just, okay. I'm doing the thing. Oh, I see. Yeah, Mariah definitely could Mariah's fucking so do bad. it. Mariah she could never do it. Mariah would suck She could never do it. Okay, we have... You we think have, you're helping me, but you're just breaking my spirit. <laughs> All right, we have something to talk about. Our author, he is an American author. He's known for violence in the way he writes. He uses little, little punctuation. He's very much like my mother when she texts me. <laughs> um, he replaced most commas with the word and. Does he use emojis? No emojis, unfortunately. Sad. I, You know, the head half gone emoji was not in the book. Um... But this is all to something called polysendentin. It's a, it's a literary term, which is the deliberate insertion of conjunctions. Class conjunctions are and, but, if. Those are some examples. Schoolhouse rock um, already taught me that mm-hmm. stuff. Hold conjunction, on. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? You're telling me all those times my teacher got pissed at me for run-on sentences, and I could have just said that I was doing that shit deliberately? Yes. Mm-hmm. Polysendentin. If you said that word, then it would have worked. Um, it's, it's putting those, although it's putting them into a sentence for the purpose of slowing up the rhythm of the prose so as to produce an impressively solemn note. 
Imagine pulling that one out on your English teacher. If you, she would probably die. <laughs> she would probably kill herself right on the spot. Here's an example from the book. <clears throat> this is during the hotel, the first hotel shootout scene where he's got the money in the vent. This is Anton. He sat and pulled on his boots and got the air tank and slung it across his shoulder and caught up the cattle gun where it swung from the rubber air hose and walked out and down to the room. All one sentence. I'm a literary master, if that's okay. Yeah, there's another book that I read that I really like mm. called Our Souls at Night, which I talked about in the year in review um, by Kent Harif. I'm probably pronouncing the last name wrong. Anyway, he does the exact same thing. And I honestly love reading that like style. It. It's really soothing in a weird way. I'm sure mm. for this book, not as much because it's kind of violent. Well, but yeah, I'm going to read you another, I like it a lot. another passage down here, which as you, the book is much more violent than the movie. I'm going to give you a couple of examples, but here's one. <clears throat> Jagger shot him three times so fast it sounded like one long gunshot and left most of the upper part of him spread across the headboard and the wall behind it. There's, Holy shit. There's one section for you. Oof. Um, there's also something called ascendentin that is the opposite, which is when you sort of cut out conjunctions. A famous example would be, I came, I saw, I conquered. Now, we're going to do something a little different than we do. Uh, you know, I was reading this and I was reading about these things and how he writes. And I was like, how would you do that in film? How would you translate those, those concepts into movies? Okay. The first one, polysyndented. You would have to put more insert shots than would otherwise be necessary. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine it would be instead of like, you know, twist the knob. Yeah. I think it, yeah, it would much the door. Be like it a would rhythm. Be, it'd be twist the knob. He adjusts his feet. He, you like do a shot of his face, the doorknob back to his hand, reaching over to the doorknob and then click. Mm -hmm. That's how you would do that. Just purely through editing. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. For the first one, Polly Sindenton. You don't, yeah, you don't have to say or come up with anything for these things. Well, no, you asked. Yeah. <laughs> um, I agree that, like, I think if you do a bunch of insert shots, then it's a lot of things in a row, which equate to that mm. long run on sentence. At the same time, I think you could potentially do that in just one long shot. Yeah. Okay. Because if they're not taking a break, then the shot doesn't take a break. So I think both could potentially mm -hmm. work. I think I would probably lean, I like long shots anyway, so I think I would lean towards just one long shot and one long take to kind of emulate that. I think for... Whatever the other one's anti, whatever you said. Uh, Ascendentin. Oh, anti Shigor. Anti Shigor. Um, I think that's when I would probably initially want to use shorter cuts because that's I saw I came a conquered. Those are very short, kind of choppy things, and I think sometimes cuts can also take you out if you use them in the in the right way to draw attention to the cut. Mm -hmm. Then you're making it very clear that things are short. Um, I wanted to talk about kind of what I thought was a combination of these two effects in the movie itself. Um, specifically smash cuts. Smash cuts are a form of a video edit where you, uh, you cut to something that is often much more quickly paced, louder, or generally in contrast to the shot prior. Um, uh, hold so, on real quick. So it feels like a smash. This would be equated to if you have ever seen... Yeah, I have some examples. Oh, oh do you want to do the examples? Oh, I mean, you can... Whatever. I was going to say, like, 2001 has one with the bone and it cuts to a spaceship. That's a smash cut. Lawrence of Arabia has a really good one with a match in a sunset. It's phenomenal. Miles, what do you got? So in, I think this is probably going to be a little bit more noticeable for most of our average viewers, but in Saving Private Ryan, when they go from him staring at the sea of graves 
smash cut to the storming of Normandy. Yeah, something like that. So very calm to very mm-hmm. hectic. Um, anyways, smash cuts are usually you know achieved with uh, a very long shot that is sort of the prior lead. It doesn't have mm-hmm. to be that way, but very often that's what it is. Um, and we know as audience, there's an unspoken language that if we get a long shot and there's not a lot happening, we're seeing this for some reason, right? There's there's some purpose to us watching a long shot. There's something important happening in the frame. And we get a smash cut towards the end of the movie that I really like. Um, not when he gets into the car accident, but just before that. The shot is this. There's clacking bikes pass by. We're looking at a house. Anton exits Carla Jean's home. He stands there. He checks his boots. And he starts walking. And then we cut to him in the car. It's a very subtle smash cut. But the droning of the car driving kind of gives it um, that smash cut feel as well as the length of the shot prior. What I like about it is like, you know, why the hell did we hold on him so long? You know, there must have been something important there. And uh, there is two important things. Class, what happens in this shot? What shot? He steps out of the house and checks his boots. Oh, yeah, because he had just murdered boots. Carla Jean. Yeah, so, so one of the reasons the saw is long is because it's giving us two important clues. One is that, yeah, he checks his boots. And throughout the whole movie, we see he really does not like to get blood on him. He's always taking off his shoes or taking off his socks or turning his head away. Once um, he kills Woody Harrelson, you see the shot of the blood creeping towards his boots. And then mm-hmm. he just, as he's on the phone, he casually just puts his feet up on the bed. As he shoots the guy in the tub, he closes the shower curtain so he doesn't get blood on him. He really just does not like blood. So that's a hint. Also, the bikes make the same clacking sound that Carla Jean's mother's coffin makes when she goes into the ground. Oh, yeah, yeah. It seems to intimate that Carla Jean was killed inside her home. But Which, I like... Well, real quick, for all the people out there who fought me on that Carla Jean does not die. <laughs> Stefan? Um, yeah, so first of all, yeah, it's intimated in the book, but or intimated in the movie, but in the book, she dies. It I says, thought it was very clear. Yeah, yeah. No, in the book, she calls the wrong coin and he shoots her. It says it. He says Anton shoots her. Yeah. Uh, what's so. different in the book, though, is um, she doesn't fight him. She doesn't disagree with him. She says, oh, you're right. I've made the wrong decisions in my life. And he's like, sorry. And then he killed her. Damn. But anyways, talking about the shot in this cut, what I like about it is, you know, at this point, when we get this long shot is we're sitting there looking for clues. We're looking for answers. We want to know, is she dead? What happened? And then it cuts kind of off rhythm. It doesn't even cut to the rhythm of his, of his footsteps. Normally when we cut, we cut on an action, kind of on the rhythm, and it cuts off rhythm into him in the car. And it sort of tells us that it wasn't important, that we're not going to get the resolution that we want, that we're not going to get, you know, a scream, a cry for help or anything like that. He's moving on. It's over. And I like this because it's um, symbolic of the whole movie is that lack of resolution and that uh, shit happens. Okay, Shit do be happening. Because, like, imagine mm-hmm. you're... Fighting for your life from a deranged madman who... Don't have to imagine. What? I'm, st- I'm looking at him right now. Oh, yeah. I am coming for you, Stefan. You got lucky disarming the shotgun trap, but it's not going to be like that when I come to your house in the middle of the night and put two in your head. <laughs> that was very brutal. I did cut that out. It's okay. That's how I want to go. I love how there was no reaction from me and Stefan necessarily, and you immediately walked back that bit. <laughs> you said it, and then I saw in your face. <laughs> immediately but, went back. The whole movie is him fighting this fucking madman gets jobbed in by a couple of gang members. Yeah, it happens. And we're going to discuss that more later on. But for now, we're going to jump back up to the book and the book differences. When you're adapting a book into a movie, you know, what stays, what goes. And in terms of this book, it is, is very accurate. There's only a few things that are different or removed or changed. And uh, I'm going to go over those a little bit. But first, if you guys had any questions about things, 
um, maybe details you thought you were left out and maybe I could answer them. I, I'll go ahead and answer them. I My one question was, what the fuck happened to him in the motel where he died? Um, so the book, the book is different. There's a section just before that. This is like the biggest difference in the book where Llewellyn, when he's driving to that hotel, picks up an 18-year-old hitchhiker and they like spend the day together. Nothing really mm. happens besides them just sort of hanging out. The biggest thing is he talks about his, well, he doesn't talk about his past, but he talks about his philosophy of the past. And he, he says like, you, uh, you can't become a new person. You can't change the slate. He's like, you can't go to the bed one day and say the other day didn't happen because the other day is what brought you to today. So to say that you're different than who you were is like impossible. That's so, a very similar philosophy to Anton. Mm-hmm. They are very similar. Um, there's a lot of couple. There's a couple of things they do that. I mean, they both buy shirts off of people when they're injured. Yeah. Um, in the beginning of the movie, Anton says "hold still" to the guy, and then we see Llewellyn hunting, and he says "hold still" before shooting the antelope. There's a, there's a lot of similarities both in the things they do and yeah. just thematically. Cool. But anyways, yeah, he picks up this hitchhiker. She's 18. A couple of funny things happen. Oh, she puts her feet up on the windshield. No, but she she does like try to get with him. But luckily he he denies and he says essentially that he loves his wife. And then what happens is the cartel show up. They hold the girl hostage at gunpoint and they tell Llewellyn to put his gun down. He puts his gun down. They shoot her in the head and then they shoot him. That's what happens in the book. And then Carla Jean reads the papers and thinks that he had an affair with her before he died. Oh, holy shit. It's a bummer. It's a bummer in the. I mean, it's a bummer in the movie, but yeah, it's much, that's that's there, way more of a bummer, bummer in though. the book. But if there's no other question, I'll just run through through some basic things in the movie in the book. <laughs> Forgive me, guys. I'm trying my best. I'm getting nothing from Ryan. I'm trying so hard to get reactions from her, but she's got this dead face. Sorry, I'm just listening. It makes me look like I'm doing a bad job. If you mess up one more time, I pull the in trigger. In the book, there's two deputies. There's Tolbert and Wendell. We don't see a second deputy in the in the book or in the movie. Um, there's also a DEA agent. There's a D there's a DEA agent in the book. Also in the book, it tells us that the deal was between the Mutacombe petroleum group and the cartel. Petroleum. Oh, that's that's who Anton works for. Yeah. But they don't, they really do not elaborate on names or anything, you know, just kind of as much as the characters do, which I think is fun. Also, no dog is shot in the book. Oh, however, dogs will get you. They will kill you. So be on the lookout. Uh, for those that don't know, I got bit by two dogs, and they scare me a little now. Don't. Uh, to all the dogs listening, stop biting Stefan. Stop biting Stop me. biting Stefan. I will say one of my dogs does have a stuffed animal of you, Stefan. And <sighs> was he due to it? Was he due to it? Was he due to it? Yeah, I'll tell you this. I have to get multiple. That's bad they, either way. I have two <laughs> actions of mine that he could be doing with that thing. Yeah, and I know what they both are, and we're not going to talk about it. <laughs> um, biggest difference in the book, though, is Sheriff Bell has a lot of chapters throughout the book where he just sort of monologues. We get it once at the beginning of the movie where he just sort of talks, but he does it a lot. Gives his fast food tier list. You know, he puts Wendy's at the top, McDonald's is second, um, Burger King is like sixth. This is um, is this a joke? Are you no, joking? Yeah, it's a joke. That's not okay. true. But Wendy's is S tier. But he he talks a lot about okay. yeah. The, the I'm kid. a Jack in the Box kind of guy. I like their curly oh, fries, but they're okay. I actually only want their, uh, you know. Um, he talks a lot in the book. He talks about a baby thrown on a trash compactor. Um, <gasps> it's what? Better, it's better for storage. You put it in the <laughs> closet. No, that isn't a joke. He does talk about because because in the movie he talks about the story with the old people that were. Yeah. Um, so he talks a lot about things he saw in the news. He also talks about how much he uh, really loves his wife. 
he really loves his wife. And he says it's like the only good thing he's got going for him. It's funny, there's a bit where he's, you know, with the case, it's just so stressful for him. He's standing on a bridge, just kind of looking out. And a trucker drives by and he's like, don't do it, Sheriff, she ain't worth it. And he's like, yeah, she is, though. And it's very sweet. My, my old battle axe, though. Ugh, ball and chain just keeping me back. Just stayed single. My wife is a 12-gauge shotgun I keep in my closet. <laughs> I'm just waiting for the day she kisses me. Um, <laughs> kisses me on the roof of my mouth. The, the coin toss scene? Pretty much the same. Stefan, I have a question. What's the most you've ever lost in a coin toss? <sighs> my, at the time, friend's phone screen. Yes. Okay. So this is a tangent. And Stefan, you can cut this out if you want. Depends but, on how well you tell it. <laughs> but right before we had started dating, Stefan was doing the bit and he was doing the Anton voice. And he was going, what's the most you've ever lost in a coin toss? And he kept calling me like friendo. Like, like we're just friendo. like hanging out. You don't know and, what you're talking and about. And then he takes a penny and he flips it and it hits my phone screen and cracks it. With a penny? With a penny. Uh-huh. And, and I was like, oh. It landed perfectly in her phone and cracked it. Mm-hmm. This was at the stage too, where I was like trying to impress her and be cool and stuff, and, and that's the most I've ever lost in a coin toss. I, it was upsetting. I love that because I can only imagine Stefan. You're there. I know how dedicated you are to bits. You yeah. d- you do the coin toss. It was a penny. It shouldn't have <laughs> it done that. It cracks the screen. I can see the the like dials in your head just as fast as humanly possible. Scooching you going, holy <gasps> shit. Well, I mean I'm so sorry. It wasn't like a horrible crack in the screen, but I was it was there. Uh-huh. <laughs> so. It was a bummer. It was a bummer. Um but yeah, the in the book it's almost word for word. There's just like a couple of different changes. However, the biggest thing is actually I was gonna say in the book it actually is close to dark. And so he says, Oh, we start close closing at dark. I should be closing, but in the movie it's like very clearly day, which mm-hmm. makes it more desperate and yeah. sad. Uh, but at the book, Anton Anton talks more in the book. And at the end of this conversation, he says, this is going to be wordy. He says, I won't do the voice, so you know what I'm saying. Wait, this is for the coin toss scene? or you At said, the end of the coin toss. At the end, of the, at the, end of the coin toss scene, as Anton's leaving, he says, anything can be an instrument, small things, things you wouldn't even notice. They pass from hand to hand. People don't pay attention. And then one day there's an accounting. And after that, nothing is the same. Well, you say it's just a coin, for instance, nothing special there. What could that be an instrument of? You see the problem? To separate the act from the thing as if the parts of some moment in history might be interchangeable with the parts of some other moment. How could that be? Well, just a coin. Yes, that's true. Is it? I think it was much better to sum it down into don't put it in your pocket, sir. Yeah, that was way also better. To become just don't a put coin. it in your pocket. It's way better. However, which it is. Which it is. And then he gives a really funny face. <laughs> um, however, that, that little blurb there is very important. And I'm going to talk later about kind of the meaning of this story. And we're going to we're going to come back to that. Real quick, actually watching it again, I noticed something. Yeah, go ahead. I used to have. <laughs> yeah. I used to have a quarter yeah. that I liked a lot. Did you? Oh, I, I think you noticed a very weird trivia thing. Yeah. And what's well, a red sided. Yeah. Coin. You, well, I'm surprised you picked up on that. Okay. And I had a very similar coin. But I was like. At one point, I was like, I don't want this red side anymore. Yeah. So I scrubbed it off. And then it was just another coin. And I don't know where it is. You know why it was red? No. Um, Arcades used to do that back in the day. They would um, paint the coins red. So 
I forget what the reason was. It was something about them going into circulation or some, uh-huh. some hoo-ha like that. But huh. that was that was the intention, the reason it was painted red. Nice to know that Anton goes to arcades. He goes to arcades. Uh, another fun little book thing is I want to talk about how Carla Jean and Luella Moss got together. Ooh. It's a very fun, sweet story. So also their age. Ooh. When What's they the met, she was about 17. How old is Luella he? Moss in the book, I think he's, it says he's like 30. Ah! Um, yeah. Um, so apparently she was 17. She's working at Walmart. Um, it was very unhappy. She's a given. You're working at Walmart. Yeah. One day she had a dreamlike vision that told her the man she would marry would find her at Walmart and she would know it when she saw him. This is classic signs of Walmart psychosis. <laughs> Um, I know it pretty well. It happened to my son, Gregory. Uh, now, every time he sees the color blue, his little heart starts beating out of his dang little chest and makes me sick to my tummy. But on the 99th day at Walmart, Llewellyn Moss came in and he said, we're sporting goods. He said that away. And he went and sporting goods and he came back and he said, what are you doing after this? That was it. They got married. Huh. I would never do that because uh, they're working. Don't hit on people when they're working. Miles has standards. He has more. If, if the rule is what brought you here, of what use was the rule? Also, loneliness. the second hotel shootout, instead of Llewellyn getting into a car with some random civilian man who gets iced just because he yeah. happens to be there because he's driving at 3 a.m. or whatever the time is, um, it's actually more cartel guys. And they ah. start shooting at Llewellyn. And then Anton starts shooting at them and it becomes like a weird... A three-way A three-way and then Llewellyn runs away and Anton kills the other guys. Um, Anton walks up to a guy as he's dying and he says, look at me, I want you to look at me. And then he looks at him and they shoots him in the head. And the quote from the book is he's standing there watching the capillaries break up in his eyes. The light receded, watching his own image degrade in that squandered world. What the so he's very fuck? Mean. Yeah, I'll skip over those details. Okay. That's, that's all I'll have to say about the book then. Uh, we'll start talking about the movie. There isn't a lot about to say about the movie. So we've actually gotten through a bulk of what we're going to talk about. Um, it's directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, Soggy Bottom Boys. We know who they are. If you don't, they directed this movie. They directed Who Brother, Where Art Thou? They directed Fargo. They directed Who Brother, Where Art Thou? Who Brother, Where Art Thou? A lot of, a lot of other Buster movies. Ballad of Buster Scruggs is another movie. They've done a lot of good movies, a lot of fun movies. <laughs> yeah, because this movie's fun. This movie is fun. It is very much an outlier for the other movies. They normally do sort of these quirky, offbeat comedy things. Um, the title for this this book and the story, by the way, the title is based off a poem called Sailing to Byzantium by William Butler Yeats. <laughs> but. Hashtag Yeat. <laughs> and the first line is, there is no country for old men, the young in one another's arms, birds in the trees, blah, 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 blah. Byzantium was an old Christian town that supposedly was very ideal it balanced all forms of society art and law and it was just the perfect place and so the concept of sailing to byzantium is someone uh lamenting on a perfect world that will not be very much like our character the sheriff shooting this movie it was is mo- that why you consider him more of a main character yes and also in the book he he pops up a lot he's okay. talking a lot he's narrating the whole thing gotcha uh well, not narrating the whole thing, but like he's, you know, the monologues and it's him talking about his feelings and stuff. This movie was shot in 2006. It was filmed mostly in New Mexico, outside the small town of Las Vegas. This is Las Vegas, New Mexico. It's a different place. I didn't realize that at first. The border crossing bridge was actually constructed and made in New Mexico, in Las Vegas. 
They had to haul Damn. in like 50,000 pounds of like steel and stuff to like make the border scene. The bit where he's in Mexico, where he crossed into Mexico, that is actually in Mexico. Oh, okay. um, they filmed it outside the church of Notre Dame de Guadalupe. I did that with a French accent and a Spanish accent. I apologize. Well, it started off with Notre Dame, so. Yeah. Yeah, that's why it threw me. Well, I do know a little fun fact. Do um, you? Yeah. So when they were shooting in Mexico, they wanted uh, it to be realistic. So they. They killed people? They Well, they shot Llewellyn in the side right. and left him to die. Right. In the shoulder. And they just waited for a mariachi band to show up right. and start singing to them. Because that's what happens in, in Mexico. Yeah, it's actually get, a Norteño band, by the way. You get different shot type of, different in type of music. shoulder and then mariachi band show up and go. They help you out. Be- <laughs> <laughs> that's what happens in Rango. First of all, there's a budget of $25 million. Um, It made $171.6 million. So wow. It did pretty well. But yes, while shooting... Is actually while they're shooting in Texas. There was another production shooting not too far away. That I just happened to called drop There Will the Be name. Blood, which by the way, There Will Be Blood is another phenomenal movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to cover that on the podcast sometime. It's great. It's got Daniel Day Lewis. It's got Paul Dano, and he goes <laughs> and he screeches. I drink your milkshake. Yeah. That's the mustache man. That's the oh, mustache man. Daniel Day Lewis. I drink your milkshake. Yeah. He does have a mustache. Daniel De- Daniel Day Daniel Lewis. Day-Lewis. Is he the mustache man? Daniel Plainview. Daniel Plainview is the character's name. Yeah. But while Miles looks that up, supposedly one day while No Country was filming, you know, landscapes and stuff, a giant cloud of smoke just started rolling on into the shot. And they're like. Sorry, Miles this, is really excited. This is, this is the shot that I know him from. That's, I that's the known. mustache man. I should have known. That's Daniel Day-Lewis. He's going to explode into this. Yeah, mustache Daniel man. Daniel Day-Lewis. Have you seen the movie? You just know him as Mustache Man? I know him as Mustache Man. I haven't seen the movie. I do He's know him as Mustache seen the movie, Man. But he knows him as Mustache Man. Anyways, There Will Be Blood was filming around the same area as No Country. And There Will Be Blood is about an oil baron guy. And there's oil derricks. And there's a, there's a bit in that movie where one of them is set on fire. And it's burning. And they were testing the pyrotechnics for that. So No Country is over there shooting their pretty landscapes and whatnot. And then this big cloud of smoke rolls in. And they're like, well, that's... A bummer. Roger Deakins was probably like, and then uh, they had but to stop. But in a production. British accent. But in a British accent, he's like, "Oh blimey, oh bloody hell, blimey, bloody hell, my." And they Roger, had, come uh, on the pod. Let us know how accurate. We which, are. by the way, both of these movies would be at the Academy Awards the same year in two thousand seven. What a rough year! Like, yeah. insane. Two, two, yeah. Very American Western movies. 2007. They both came out. So 2007. 2008. 2007 was balling for movies. I was mm-hmm. eight years old, so I was not allowed to watch either of these movies. Nope. Uh, no, same. The, the movie and the way it was filmed was very reminiscent of another director called Sam Peckinpah, who did a lot of gritty, bleak, and kind of like very macho, masculine Westerns. Um, he did a movie, The Wild Bunch. He also did another movie called Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia that I like. The guy running around the West with a head. Pretty cool. But the Coens remarked on this and they said in quotes, yeah, you show a hard on guy in a Western cut suit and it already looks like a peck and palm movie. A hard on guy. And another quote relating to this, they said, yeah. hard men in the Southwest shooting each other. That's definitely a Sam peck and Paul thing. Hard men in the West shooting each Are other. You- <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot of movies about hard, hard men, men shooting each other. Yeah. Something shot onto their face. 
I, I'm watching those onto kinds their of, face. I'm watching those movies all the time. The, the keyword here is onto. Yeah. <laughs> Are you not watching those movies? Um, reminiscent of no, uh, Brokeback Mountain. The word choice. Yeah. Another great Western. Uh-huh. Um, in the same interview, I thought this was funny. I was reading this interview from 2007. The Coen's ended the interview by saying they have another western in the works it's a proper western a real western set in the 1870s it's got a scene that no one will ever forget because of one particular chicken and us we know that this must be the ballad of buster scruggs the nugget man the the chicken that does math Mm -hmm. but it's interesting to see that oh they they were writing this or started this production in 2007 and the movie came out in like 2018 or something Mm-hmm. So, Damn. I thought that was a fun little got a real avatar on our hands. <laughs> fun little tidbit, real avatar, really just churning that butter until it becomes nice and pasteurized or whatever they do with butter. I don't know how it works. Miles is making a gesture. You'll have to guess which one. It relates to the last conversation we had about hard men. No, no, I'm churning butter. No, he's churning butter. He's double fisted churning dubber. Churning butter. Churning dubber. I'm churning dubber. Remember, Chigurh's hair. His amazing, fantastic hair. Oh, his hair's so nice. It came from a photograph of a man they saw in a book Tommy Lee Jones had. Um, I also saw sources saying they saw it in a bar in in a West Texas. But the hairdresser also said they based it off of the hairstyle of old English warriors. Like old English, like crusade people would have hair some like that. Some bull-ass cuts. Some bull-ass cuts. Bardem said... Making his head looking like a wiener. <sighs> okay, you're... <laughs> You're really not getting off the hard men thing, are you? <laughs> and I refuse to participate yeah. in those yeah, bits. Yeah, Mariah is looking at her phone. Well, no, I'm pulling. I'm not like disinterested. <laughs> oh, I'm pulling sorry. something up for later. Um, but gone. Bardem said, you don't have to act the haircut. The haircut is acting by itself. He also said, now I won't get laid for two months. He had yeah, that, that is a rough haircut to have. It's um, not great. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. But, but Javier Bardem, the actor for Anton Sugar, was very happy to work with the Coens because he felt their movies were very deeply American and had no room for a foreigner. And that's sad. He would actually be the first Spanish actor to win Best Supporting Actor at the Oscars. So, well, he's he's Mexican? Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. Javier Bardem. His name is Javier Bardem. Um, he initially told the Coens when they, when they reached out to him, he said, I don't drive. I speak bad English and I hate violence. And they said, that's why we called you. And uh, he got the role. They also, oh yeah, they also considered Mark Strong and Heath Ledger for the role. Heath Ledger? But Heath Ledger was gearing up to work on the Batman movie as Joker. That was so, yeah. He was busy. Right? Yeah. yeah. There's also this funny story where Josh Brolin, in the scene where he finds the money, he was like, I think when we do the scene that like this is a big moment for my character. I think you should like say something, you know, kind of like a huh. And Joel was like, okay, huh. Like, could you, could you give me some more? And he's like, yeah, I ran through like 12 different huhs. And Joel was like, okay, do like the sixth one. And then um, Brolin was like, yeah, every time we screened the movie, I knew where Joel was in the theater because whenever I went huh, he would burst out laughing. Huh. Give me your best I found the money. Huh. Yahoo! Huh. <laughs> this movie is edited by Roderick Janes, who, as you guys might, may not know, does not so, exist. Just to be clear. Because the so, Cullen brothers make fake people Yes. to do the editing. I mm-hmm. remember you talked about this. Yes. 
I retain knowledge. Look at that. I was just going to double check so that really, for the most part, filming went pretty smoothly and there wasn't anything. Filming went smoothly. Um, There's nothing really to remark. Uh, Edited by Roderick James, like I was saying, which is not a real man. The Coens use it. They edited the movie themselves, but they use this guy as a sobriquet. uh, It's another nickname. It's fake. Whatever. Made up name. Pseudonym. So they can edit it themselves. Because the, the real specifics is there's an issue with the way the editing guild works as well as like the the directing guild and you're not really you can't cross the street yeah you can't yeah it's it's if you're the director you can't also be the editors they make yeah and and there's also a thing with there being two editors yeah so it is very complicated so they made up this fake man which is well chloe Zhao edited nomadland yeah i i think it has more to do with there being two editors than it does with them being the directors but they've they've used this guy since fargo also the money case is the same case as in fargo oh I don't, well, I don't know if it's the same case, but it's the same kind of it's case. Same, same brand. Yeah. And if Roderick... My, my brand. The contacts commercial? The glasses <laughs> yeah. commercial? My brand? Oh, yeah. my... Oh, what do you put... Jeez. <laughs> okay, fuck that one again. <laughs> um, if, if he, Roderick Jaynes, had won, the presenter of the award would have had to accept it because they don't allow proxies or third parties up at the Oscars since Marlon Brando and Sasheen Littlefeather... Which, if for those of you who don't know, back in the Oscars, Marlon Brando had a woman named Sasheen Littlefeather accept his award, and she gave a speech talking about um, sort of the in- injustices and bad treatment of Native American people in America, as it's been. And a lot of people got mad. <laughs> John Wayne had to be physically um, restrained from like attacking yeah, her on stage. It was it was a really big thing. So ever and since- also just last year, the Academy issued a, a formal apology to her. Right like 50 years later and she said okay and then she actually passed away last year as well yeah shortly after that yep so sad and ever since film then. history for you ever since then if you if you can't be the one to accept it then you know they don't they don't let you have someone else do it for you because they don't want that happening again also this was the first oscar winning film edited with final cut pro which is a editing program eh, nice. eh, eh. honestly premiere all my homies Use DaVinci Resolve. Yeah, miles on that DaVinci Resolve. It's free. It's free. It is strictly superior than Premiere. Strictly superior. And if you say that it's not, you're that's copium. You're on some <sighs> military grade copium. Um, this movie was shot by Roger Deakins. Never heard of him. Never heard of him. He is the goat cinematographer. Um, he's very well known. He's probably the most well known. In terms of names for cinematographers, the closest to a household name you can get. He did Blade Runner 2049. He won for 1917. He's done a lot of the work with the Coen brothers. They decided not to go with a very stylized route. Normally in some of the other Coen brother movies, it's a little more stylized in terms of compositions and colors. Especially if you look at like Oh Brother. You know, the colors in Oh Brother, where art thou? We recently watched Raising Arizona. Yes, that one. That one is bonkers. Very stylized. Yes cartoonish Um, at times so for this one they're like let's go a little more dark dark realism here very dark Um, very real and one thing to know about the coens is they storyboard everything they're very very specific with their storyboards they've always been that way so there was only like a couple shots that aren't in the movie that they shot shout out to my storyboard homies storyboard homies i like the storyboard but i don't think i'm that good at it i just like knowing what's gonna get shot yeah it's very good it's very good to just visualize and help um, 
figure out what you need to do, where you need to do it. Dude, being on sets where they don't have the storyboard and they're like, ah, let's makes figure me out what poop. the shot's going to be as we're here on set. And you're like, Duh. stresses me out. It makes me poop and fart. I bend over and I everywhere on the walls and I oh, rub I in the doo speckles. Uh, they shot. Mariah. <laughs> Mariah, I brown. They shot. Can you queen me up? <laughs> they shot this movie on film. <laughs> Can you queen my brown? Do not. This movie was shot on film, thirty-five millimeter film, with about two hundred fifty thousand feet of film. Damn. And for many productions of this size, they might shoot about seven hundred thousand feet of film. Oh shit! So they were very economical in the way that they did this movie. And Roger Deakins, something the fun know about him that ties into this movie is he very often does not carry zoom lens. He hates zooms. He does not like to zoom. Unless, he's, a, he's a prime kind of guy. Yeah. Well, yeah, he likes to push the camera in. He likes to move it closer to the subject rather than having the camera zoom oh, in. Oh, I see. Okay. Yes, yes. So he just like won't carry lenses that have the ability to zoom unless like it's specifically required. Well, so that's actually really interesting because I I remember watching the first coin toss scene mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it it... Well, I guess it doesn't zoom in, Mm -hmm. but it it punches in ever so slightly. Yes. Um, Yes. And I remember watching it and being like, oh, yeah, you got to like have your, you know, you have someone just like punching in very Mm -hmm. slightly that entire time and hearing this. I'm like, oh, okay. So they use, they must have used tracks and actually moved the camera to do that instead. Mm -hmm. Yep. Just very, very subtle, slow. We're film people, so we probably pick up on it. But the concept is that you're not supposed to pick up on it. That's supposed to be a very subconscious thing. Yeah. It's just, it's escalating and heightening as you get closer and you're creeping in and it's lurching. A static shot, kind of boring. Mm. But when you add an almost unnoticeable amount of movement, instantly not boring. Right? Takes? It took. Been quiet. I don't think, I, I genuinely don't think I have much to add. It works well. It looks good. I like his style. I also prefer just to move the camera than just zoom in, so... Why? I don't know. I just do. All right. Mm. Okay. Well, that actually does bring us to the end of um, production. I wanted to uh, take some time to sort of explain the story if you guys wanted. Go for but, it. But uh, I don't have to. Because you- I am an illiterate, dumb, dumb idiot that doesn't understand film concepts. And so themes go over my head very easily. And I only grasp surface level ideas. That's why I thought I'd break it down for you, Miles. So break it down for me. Break it down sexual style. Break it sexual style, twerking on these viewers, listeners. Okay. They're this viewing might... us in their mind's eye. <sighs> okay. We're, we're going to discuss this. If anyone has anything to say, jump in, say something. This might be a little youth pastory. I'm going to try and avoid that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and not sound like a youth pastor preaching to you guys, but... Here it is. You know who else is Among Us, kids? Oh, Jesus Among Christ. Us. Sus. The Pokemon go Sussy. to the polls. Sus. Okay, hold on. <laughs> Actually. No politics, no politics. The po- oh, wait, I, we said no religion. Shoot. The, the no, Pokemon right. go to the polls, I do find kind of funny. <laughs> funny. I think if her charisma was higher, she could have gotten away yeah. with it. It was not Hillary Clinton saying it. Wasn't no. Hil- if Obama said that shit. <laughs> he also like is a comedian and how he yeah. delivers things, so it would have gone a lot I think I think a Pokemon go to the polls is, is actually kind of funny. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. All right, youth pastor, take the word. <sighs> okay, this movie... And the purpose of it is it's, it's, it's a comment on fate and determinism, destiny, things like that. So, for instance, when he talks about, you know, the coin being just a coin, it's not just a coin. Um, at the end of, you know, his speech, 
There's a man, Aaron Ralston. He got his arm trapped in a boulder. He had to cut it off. 127 hours. Yes, he was a real man who got that happened. Who got that happened. He was a real man. He was a real man. He was a real man. A bump blood. Well, I mean, you know, as real as a man with one arm can be. Yes, as of now. Um, but anyways, taking that and using that as an example to think about this, this philosophy is that man got stuck with a boulder. A boulder or a rock that had been sitting there, I don't know how many years. Miles, you're better with numbers, but with the formation of the earth happened, I billions. don't know how long ago. That rock, that rock has been At least 25 formed. years. At a solid 25 years. A yeah, solid plus. one plus. to two years. Mm-hmm. You know, and it formed with, minutes, with, maybe. with gravity and lava and water yeah, and no, life. So maybe that, it rolled around and moved, whatever. But that rock had been sitting there waiting there, maybe even before humans existed. Yeah. Just waiting for him to... Like for this event to happen, and then it happened, and so it's like, how could you sit there and be like, "Oh, that's just any old rock"? When like the the forces of nature that made this thing happen are significant, you know. And you can find that in anything happened with life, you know. Yeah, like kingdoms have risen and fallen mm-hmm. and in the time that rock there. has just sat there. Yes, and so Anton refers to these accountings, you know, that eventually there's these accountings and things happen, and that's that's what he's referring to. And there's a philosophy he talks about in the book of how he models himself. And he, he straight up says he sort of models himself like a god. He straight up thinks of himself as a god. How humble of him. Oh. Mm-hmm. And he thinks that as long as he sort of acts as an arm of the universe that he's immune to it. So if he just sort of does the coin toss and is destructive, not only does he exonerate himself of like guilt, but he, he thinks it makes him just immune to well, its forces. If you wanted to cope with the mass amounts of murder you're doing, I think a good one would be, since everything is planned out, so are my murders. Mm-hmm. So, like, I have no say in who I kill. I just kill. Yes. So, so his, his whole, you know, philosophy is that he just, he thinks he's, he's something more than human. That he's, he is this counterpart of the universe acting on its will. And doing these things. Which is not an uncommon thing to find in like serial killers and mm-hmm. psychopaths. So mm-hmm. That checks out. And so what's important is at the end of the movie is Carla Jean, you know, rebukes this. She says, no, it's just you. It's you. You have free will. You, you know, it's you a coin and a gun. Like, this is all you. You're not some piece of the universe doing this thing. This is you have the choice to do this. And he does not like uh, that. Yeah, and, and he doesn't like that. Well, she's really the only antagonist to this idea of fate. Because mm-hmm. even Luell in the book apparently mm. is like, no, we yeah. all have a course. Mm-hmm. No one else is like, it's all just random. It's nonsense. It's silliness. Yeah. And so Anton thinks that by doing what he does, that he's sort of immune to the universe. And she says no. And uh, that's exactly what happens. Is he gets in a car crash when he had the right of way uh, at a green light. And what's important about this is it's a knock to his ego and his philosophy. And he's like, I'm not immune. The universe can still have it out for me. And that's the point of that. So he does kind of lose, actually. And the the art here is that there's a lot of there's a lot of motifs of circles, like a coin. In the the stoplight being, you know, he made he made a coin toss with the green light without realizing it, and he got T-boned. Um, that's sort of the philosophy about this, you know. At the beginning of the movie, Sheriff Bell says, Every day we put our souls at hazard. Okay. Now here's where things get preachy. Stay with me. The youth pastors come. Please stay with me. Okay. Okay. Because it is relevant. 
Ecclesiastes is a part of the writing of the of the Hebrew Bible and wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Okay, it's it's a it's a religion thing. Got it. It's a Got book it. in the Bible. It's about Bible. it's about Wait, a book it deals... in a book. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Book of the Bible. Okay. The Bible is um, made of books, made which are like chapters. It deals with existentialism. <laughs> it deals with the certainty of death and the vanity of man, which are all the things that Sheriff Bell is going through. But here's here. Let me read you this passage. One passage is, there is a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. Oh. That sounds, that sounds pretty damn relevant, that don't it? That sounds very similar. And there is also a passage, 9-11, you, says, no. the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong, but time and chance happen to them all. Meaning that it doesn't matter how strong you are, you're not going to win every battle. You know, like mm-hmm. things happen. Anyways, what's presented in the story is this concept of a very unfeeling, merciless universe that just things happen and there is no real morality. And that's where we have Sheriff Bell. He's an old man, cop. He feels like he can't really uh, cope with the universe, you know, and a lot of that feeling for us is given through like an off-screen death for Llewellyn for no apparent failure of morality. You know, he, he dies normally in movies, people die because they did something wrong. But like the last thing we see him do is being loyal to his wife. Yeah. It's kind of like, why, you know, why, why does he get why, punished? Yeah, why, and then he why hasn't is, done anything wrong. Yeah. We're supposed, essentially we're supposed to feel how he feels. And it does that by defying the conventions of storytelling and what we are used to. And the good guy winning and the bad guy losing, or at the very least, like Mariah remarked, the good guy dying from the bad guy. We don't even really, we don't even get the good guy shot by the bad guy. Yeah. It's just some other guys that are involved. He's, he's absolutely cheated. Yeah. And so the, the whole purpose of that is to make us feel like Sheriff Bell. He's like, oh, the world sucks now. It was so much better then. They didn't carry guns back then. Like, the world sucks. It's evil. Narcotics are bad. And then he goes to... No people with green hair. Yeah, people with green hair and piercings. Oh, my God. I can't take it. I used then, to have green hair. I used to have hair. Peter Pan. <laughs> and then, anyways, he goes to his uncle, his uncle Ellis. Oh, that's out that Out in the... Uh, out in the boonies. Where, boonies, wherever he lives. And then he tells, okay, so it's Uncle Ellis's uncle. So it's Sheriff Bell's grand uncle or uncle grandfather. I'm or not, something. I don't know. I don't know what that, what that is. But he tells him that back in 1909, he uh, was on his porch one day and he just got shot in the back. And it was tragic and it was sad and he died in the night. And the whole point of that being that, dude, the world's always sucked. You just thought it was better. You're sitting here crying over all this horrible thing that's happening, but it's like tragedy's been around forever. It changes shape, sure, but like it's always been here. And one final thing, we'll go into our last movements here is I know Mariah knows. I don't know if I mentioned this to you, Miles, or if you thought about it. There's no music in this movie. Music is my Achilles heel in movies. Mm. I just don't notice it. I don't notice it. I don't really think about it as much as I should. Well, it's so, good because it's not in this movie. There's a couple of scenes where there's just like really quiet droning that's kind of buried in the, in the soundscape. Class. Yeah, you can kind of hear like these strings sort of, but there really is no soundtrack throughout the movie. Which I love. Yes. But what we do get a lot more present than those moments of sound or of, of strings and stuff is we get a lot of wind. Mm-hmm. We get a lot of sounds of the wind. There's a couple of scenes where you just hear the wind. They really, they really want you to have the wind there. There's Chigurh's Calogun operates on air. That's a form of wind. There's a lot of shots of open windows with wind blowing through the curtains and things like that. Or underneath the door where we see Trigger's shadow, we hear yeah. blowing wind. 
There's a lot of emphasis on the sound of wind in this movie. And I believe a reason for that is, well, also another thing is windmills are shown in the beginning and Uncle Ellis lives next to a windmill. So that's more and more wind. And what he tells Bill when he's in there having his conversation, he says, what you've got is nothing new. You can't stop what's coming. That's vanity. And jumping back, Ecclesiastes one um, nine, and also a section 14 says, there's nothing new under the sun. Behold, all is vanity and a grasping for the wind. So the wind is just a metaphor for the shit you can't yeah, do the, anything the about. Chaos. Of the it. chaos of the universe. And in that same way, you know, Anton is an embodiment of that, you know, with his air gun. And often, yeah, we see him going and coming through windows and it's just the sound of the wind, you know, as he just comes and goes with the wind. Our story leaves us with an old man realizing the world sucks. It's always sucked. He can't do anything about it, and he doesn't want to step out into a world with all this crazy evil stuff and uh, die. So he resigns as sheriff. I do have one final question. Yes. What is your takeaway from his final dream? Yes, that is the final thing. The final dream, he's talking about, shoot, is it his grandpa? Is his dad. His, his dad. So he's explaining how he mentions lighting a horn. What they used to do in the old days is they get embers from a fire and put it in a horn. And then they'd carry it with them. And then when they stopped, they'd use that to light another fire. Yeah, because this was, I mean, this this goes back in human history a while where making fire was fairly difficult. Yes. And so you didn't want to have to just sit there trying to make a fire in, say, a snowy, cold situation. So, yeah, yeah. you would carry the embers in a horn. So, so in his dream, you know, he's imagining his father going out there and making a path in the world that's safe and bright and lit, you know, whatever. And it's just a concept of just that, of just him imagining this world where everything was better, this rose-tinted look back that he thought things were, that they never were, and it never will be. And so it's just him. And then that, that final line of him being like, I woke up. I woke up from, you know, the, uh, I don't know, false, the falsity of, of a just world. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Well, so real quick, for, I want to talk about what I took from that mm. dream. Yes, yes. He's talking a lot about how, like, just dark and cold and yes. miserable it is and how he's going through it mm -hmm. and he sees his dad and he has this like beacon of light and he's like wherever my i know wherever i go my dad is going to be there with the light but his dad never passes any of the light to him mm -hmm. and he's left in a cold dark world and now he's sheriff alone in a world of cruelty and mm -hmm. darkness and cold and there is no good force anymore. Yes. There is no country for old men, one might yeah. say, which this echoes the poem that this came from, which is the concept of someone just lamenting on a world that they wish existed of, you know, perfect society and morality and whatnot, which. I just wanted to add something on about his dream real yeah. quick that I liked, which was he, he was talking about the fact that um, he has now been alive longer than his dad mm. ever was. Oh, yeah. And I think the concept of in the dream, him being older than his father is mm -hmm. very interesting. Mm -hmm. And I just really like that, but I don't really have anything else to add. I think you guys kind of said exactly what I took away and what I liked about it, but I just wanted to add that line in because I thought it was interesting. That was a very good line, I remember. What? So I will start off by saying what I liked about the movie because I think the dialogue is really good. Everything they say is just so like quotable and almost picturesque, I guess, mm -hmm. in, a, in a way of, of words. Don't know uh, what you're talking about. Gosh, it's just so good to watch. 
and the the tension, the long shots, like when he's in that room, when he's in the hotel room with his sawed off shotgun pointed at the door, and you're like, the lights turn off, you're like mm-hmm. the tension's right there, and then he gets fucking nailed in the chest with the lock, and you're like, you know, he shouldn't be sitting right in front of the door. Oh, it's so good. I don't know what else. It's it's such a good movie. The tension is great. Unfortunately, like the cinematography to me is good, but it's not like super picturesque. It's not mm. like a movie like The Norseman or something mm. where it's like each shot is almost a painting. Mm. In in my opinion, I don't know, I'm sure you love Roger Deakins, so you're probably going to be I was like, like, it's a Western for me. But the, I mean, yeah, there's some shots where it's kind of like, okay, it's just a shot. But mm. um, I particularly like the lighting. There's a lot of shots too with just Anton being obscured, coming in and falling out of light. Um, the one shot where he's walking down the sort of hallway thing with his socks and the, the overhead lights. He steps under one, you see his, he's lit from the top and then he's in darkness and then he's lit from top again. He's in darkness and it's just mm-hmm. stuff like that. There's a lot of angles they had on his face that was really good. Very good movie. Mariah, mm-hmm. general thoughts before we get into just straight ratings? Um, yeah, this movie's great. Um, no surprise there. Yeah, I was telling Stefan as we were watching it, I, I s- saw this movie already, but it had been a really long time. And even though I knew what was going to happen, it was still so tense, like both of the motel scenes. And yeah, especially that second one when Anton stands in front of the door, walks away, turns off the light and comes back. Phenomenal. Um, just like the silence again, not using music or anything. Just you have, you sit there with the character, just like you're in the room with him. I also wanted to point out this art, uh, this survey that recently resurfaced, like a right. month ago or something like that. Um, and the study looked back at 400 movies from the past like 100 years. And so the people who looked at this were senior forensic psychiatrists and cinema critics. They used these kind of criteria to determine who was like the best movie psychopath. And so the criteria was like, are they uncaring, the shallow emotions, insincere speech, overconfidence? Poor planning abilities, irritability, and violent tendencies. And Anton was the winner. Yeah, Anton was the most realistic. Yeah. yeah. Out of the like the two hundred out of like the two hundred villains that they examined yeah. and rated and studied, he they found that he was the most kind of realistic and most accurate portrayal of the serial killer and like psychopath, which I just think, you know, good job on the Cohens and obviously good job to Javier Bardem. Yes. I also I also just want to say like, yeah, Tommy Lee Jones is my favorite character in this by far. I mm-hmm. love him. He's great. Yeah, he's great. I like a kindly old man. Yeah, well, one thing I like about this movie is the performances are a lot more subtle than you think they are. No one no one shouts or yells in this movie. Despite all that's happening with like the violence and the shooting and stuff, like none of our main characters are like screaming or yelling. They're all pretty reserved. I mean, Anton kind of has this yeah, this underlying like psychotic nature to him. But he doesn't scream or yell, you know, and I think, you know, that's what makes him scary. Is just he's walks silently. Very smooth. Um, and I like that from the actors. And even just like, yeah, looking at Westerns, a very common thing you see in Westerns is that the women are like hysterical. And I like that Carla Jean is actually very. Not. Just not that. And yeah, like at the end, you know, her arguing with Anton and having that agency. I Yeah, I really like this movie. The, the cinematography is great. Performances are great. The way it's constructed, the filmmaking of it, you know, the way it's pacing, it's rhythm, everything. It's it's very good. And one thing that really, I already liked it a lot. One thing I really liked, it was just analyzing its theme. The one thing I really like about it is, is Sheriff Bell's struggle in this concept of the universe because, you know, this is something I've thought about a lot and it's something that 
I kind of relate to in the sense of how I, I view things. Like there isn't a lot you can do and you need to know when you can let go and things just happen. And I relate a lot with Belle, even though I'm not an aging old sheriff. You know, there's one line in this movie that makes me very sad. And that's when he's talking to his uncle and he's like, I feel overmatched. It's just so sad. It's like, yeah, yeah, I get that. You know, it's like this world sucks and things happen. They can happen at any time. You never know what's going to happen. You got to just sort of prepare and be ready to go with it. And I just really like that philosophy that goes behind that in this movie. And that's what really just mm -hmm. connects it with me, which um, is why I'm going to give it the rating I'm going to give it. So if you guys have nothing else to say, I'm going to jump into it. Go for it. I, I give it a five out of five. Give me out of 10, please. Five out of five out of 10? Yeah. 10 out of 10. We've always We've been. always done 10. Well, no. there's a couple times you did five. No, but I'm doing five. But you can translate it. 10 out of 10. 10 out of... This Dead is dogs. Your, this is your first... This is my first 10 out of 10. possibly your only. I have a few that I would do 10 out of 10. I, I used to have a philosophy. I still don't. Where I don't do things 10 out of 10. But it's, that's, that's for the things that just like connect with me like spiritually. What is your rule? What is your rule? If it is brought to you. I will give this movie. Okay, here's, here's something. And this is the plight of the, of the Gen Z. When I'm watching a movie at home, my phone is right there. Mm. my phone is next I to my lap. I have struggled with that a lot lately. And it, I've, I've definitely been struggling with, a lot with it right, lately. I looked at my phone a little bit in the beginning of this movie, but then I stopped and I sat down and I watched this movie start to end. And so for my little fucking Gen Z brain, I, I, I need dopamine. I need give it to me, give it to me. I need do Subway Surfer, put Subway Surfer on Subway the bottom Surfer. of the fucking movie. I need you back to it. Right? Um... To be able to watch it and just watch it is miraculous. It's something I need to work on, but it's, you know, I can't believe it did it. I'm going to give this movie a 10 out of 10. Wow. This is a stupendous movie. This is 10 silenced shotguns out of 10. That's the sound it makes you. Nice. Um, yeah, I've been a little quiet on this episode, not because I'm. You like the soundtrack. No, it's not because I didn't like it or anything. I just, it's a little bit harder to bounce off a movie like this. So I've just been a little bit more silent. But I do not want you guys to mistake that for me not liking this movie. I really enjoy it. I love a good Western. I love a good Western with Tommy Lee Jones in it. Um, I think the, like I said, the tension is really good. The cinematography, obviously stunning. I love all the landscapes that they do. The cat and mouse that goes on with Anton and Llewellyn. I think it's very good. I think... There are a lot of moments when they're on their own and you don't need to have dialogue to understand what's going on. I think they do a really good job of showing, not telling. Yeah, the acting is superb. You know, Javier Bardem deserved that Oscar that he got for this. Uh, totally. And I don't know really what else to say because you guys have kind of said it all, honestly. I'm not going to give it a 10 out of 10, I think. But I think I will give it nine coin tosses out of 10. So. All right. All right, Boys fans. Well, real quick. Thanks for sticking with us. If you heard No, any... fuck you. Real quick. What's your favorite death? I liked when Anton iced the two suits at the beginning. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I'll say the guy in the office building. Because oh, yeah. I didn't stay... In the book, it specifically says he uses birdshot so he doesn't break the glass on the window. Oh. So it doesn't rain down on the street. And he, he just sort of watches him die. But more, I like the, the bit after it. Just that moment. When he's like... Who are you? He's like, you gonna kill me? And he's like, depends. My favorite death is Zombie Landman. 
I keep forgetting his name. Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson. Just because it's like the phone rings. Shot during a phone call mm-hmm. or phone ringing. Well, well, that scene's really interesting too because I, I was going to talk about it, but didn't. Is and you don't even really see it. I mean, like you see it, but yeah, is when you're watching the conversation, hearing him talk, you realize Anton doesn't need to be there. There's nothing he needs from him. He already has the information he wants. And he just wants to kill it's, him. It's when the phone rings that you see that what he wanted from him was just that sign of submission. You know, when he looks away and he flinches, that's what he wanted. And once he gets it, he kills him immediately because he's crazy. A psycho. <laughs> yeah. Mariah. What's the next episode? I don't know what the next episode is. All right. Yeah. Actually, yeah, neither do I. What is the next episode? Okay. So I'm back at it again for in two weeks time. It'll be me again at the helm and uh, very dramatic oh, wait. I do tone shift. I don't. Um, we're going to be talking about the Goonies. Oh, shoot. We're talking about the Goonies? We're going right. to talk about the Goonies. Yo! Yeah. It's um, a very fun movie. I, Stefan and I have been to Astoria. We have visited some of the locations mm-hmm. um, from the movie. And uh, it's just good old-fashioned fun. I figured I'd shake it up from kind of the new ones that we've been doing and some mm-hmm. serious tones. So that very will be fun. the next one. But in the meantime, until then, of course, as always, you can follow us on social media. We are on Twitter and on Instagram at the Takes It Took. And if you want to shoot us an email with any corrections, comments, movie suggestions, just want to say hi, you can do that as well at thetakesittook at gmail.com. Yeah, we oh. do a lot of uh, Q&A kind of stuff on our Instagram, a lot of fun posts. So uh, mm-hmm. please make sure you're following us there. You can also get updates when a new episode comes out by following us as well. But until then, stay safe, have fun, yes. watch movies. And, I want to uh, say if you actually made it this far. Thank you guys for sticking along. Yeah, this was a very heavy, dense episode. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably most likely my mom made it to this point. Thank you, mom. <laughs> I carry like a pound cake. Yeah, we had some production issues with sounds and things. We had to start, start and stop and just things were chunky. But uh, thanks for sticking around mm-hmm. if you did. And if you did, use the special promo code just for you. It's XY7139. Enter that into your local Coast Guard database and... You will find documents relating to the location of. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye. Well, real quick. So Yo. before we do the bye, if you do follow those coordinates, it will take you to my apartment, which if you don't want to do that whole thing is. Bye. bye. You have to stop doxing yourself. Miles. <laughs>